welcome to How Fitting, the podcast for fashion designers and entrepreneurs about creating clothing and growing a business that fits your customer, lifestyle, and values. I'm your host, Allison Haynes. Before we get started, do you want to get your designs to production without compromising your brand's fit, vision, or values? My pattern making services are tailored to help women's wear slow fashion brands do just that. You can learn more and book a free introduction call at howfittingpatterns.com to see if we'd be a good fit to work together. Now on to the episode. Today I'm joined by Rivki Itzkowitz of Impact Fashion. So welcome to the show, Rivki. Thank you so much for having me, Allison. It's great to be here. Yeah, I'm so excited. Um, for those who are lis- who are listening and just meeting you for the first time, could you share a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. So my name is Rifki Eskowitz. I am the founder and designer at Impact Fashion, which is a line of modest clothes available in sizes 2 through 28. I myself am an Orthodox Jew. I have been dressing modestly my entire life. I've been, you know, a practicing Orthodox Jew my whole life. And there was really this frustration that I always had with getting dressed, which was as someone who dresses modestly, I cover my knees, elbows, and collarbone at all times. I There were modest pieces, and then there were pieces that fit well, and those tended to not be the same pieces of clothing. And mm-hmm. so, you know, growing up, what a lot of, you know, me and my friends would be doing was that we would be layering clothes that we liked with, you know, shirts under, sweaters over, that kind of thing. Uh, and there really just wasn't any great fitting modest clothes that worked for us exactly as you know as we are so I've always loved fashion I've always been super interested in just how we get dressed and the glamour of it all you know fashion is something Mm -hmm. that until you start working on it you think it's very very glamorous (laughs) and I um I knew that I wanted to you know I was into design I was into sewing I've been sewing since I'm 10 and I was always very interested in the actual what I call the engineering of a garment, you know, how something is really designed, constructed to fit the body properly. So Mm -hmm. I sewed, you know, all throughout high school, I took pretty extensive classes, especially on a couture track about um, how, you know, hand finishes and and how things really come together. And I worked as a seamstress actually for a couple of years where I was working with women in my community to alter pieces, to make them fit their modesty standards. And Mm -hmm. It's just like one day I just kind of looked up and I was like, hmm, why don't we just make clothes that don't need these alterations? Why don't we just make clothes that are long enough, that have necklines that are high enough? Um, And that's where Impact Fashion came from. So cool. And I I love so many things about that story. Um, One being I I share your your fascination and love of kind of the intricacies of how clothing fits and and making things fit. Um, But then also just that you like fused fashion with the values that you have for the rest of your life. And I I think that's how it should be. Like fashion should fit the rest of our life and values and not have to um, like wear things that we don't like, that don't fit, that don't like support, you know, what we care about um, and how, you know, how we want to express ourselves to the world. So I love that you um, kind of putting this all together into this brand. Thanks. It's also, see, I, I've always viewed fashion as somewhat of an outsider. Like when I've, I've always loved 
red carpet events and runways and, you know, my grandmother's Vogue magazines. And I always loved looking through those things. But again, like I said, I've been dressing this way my whole life. I've never um, I've never really struggled with dressing this way, which is not necessarily a typical experience for someone from my background, but it's my experience. Mm-hmm. And so I, I was always kind of looking at fashion as like, well, how would I do this differently? okay, I wouldn't wear this this way, but how would I make this more covered? How would I make this something that works for my life and and how I wear? And I think that that perspective really helped me um, when it came time to thinking about the inclusivity of my line, because Mm -hmm. I was kind of used to looking at clothes with this critical eye of, okay, that's not going to work, but how do we make it work? And then when it came to sizing, there was, I mean, I don't really, there were no really good reasons for why clothing just didn't come in more sizes. A lot of people think it's much more expensive to produce in uh, in a lot of sizes. It is more expensive, but it's not hugely more expensive. It's not exorbitantly yeah. more expensive. So like meaning there is extra cost and the extra cost is mostly in the fact that you are making more garments, not necessarily in the like the actual construction of a plus size garment is not different than the actual construction of a straight size garment. That's just not true. Um, yeah, but I just think the that inventory the, and the complexity of exactly more sizes, regardless exactly. of whether they're large sizes or small sizes. Yeah, correct. I, I stock 14 sizes in my line and I'm working with only so much storage space. Yeah, it's a lot of sizes. So that's where the extra cost comes in. It comes in the extra storage space. It comes in the um, just needing to carry more physical pieces and produce more physical pieces of each garment so that you have enough in each size. Um, that's where it gets more expensive. But it's not like the actual construction or patterning of it is that much different if you know how Mm -hmm. to if you know how to fit a straight size person properly and I'm not talking about someone who just knows how to make something that looks good on a smaller person but if you know how to actually conduct a fitting then you Mm -hmm. should be able to actually conduct a fitting on any sized person and if you Mm -hmm. can't do that then I'm going to go out on a limb and say you're actually not as great at fitting as you think you are, um, which may sound a little bit harsh, but I have found it to be, I have found that it has held up. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. No, I a hundred percent agree with that where I it's, there's so much, and maybe you, you've experienced this too, having, you know, taken fashion courses, but I feel like in school, it's so much like here, square down from this measurement over this much and, you know, mark A to B here. And they give you the measurements to like draft a bodice or whatever, but in, in you know, sample size or whatever, dress form size, size two or something. And, but they never focus on like fitting an actual body, like, you know, taking those measurements and saying, okay, so if you're fitting this body versus this dress form, how is that going to change? What is the pattern going to look like? How do you kind of map the, you know, 3D form of this person's body to a flat pattern? Like the kind of concept behind that, um, rather than just like follow these steps. Um, it's yeah, less I think there's some truth to that. Yeah, I think that there's some truth to that. I think that it's also, this is a problem that we see in lots of different types of education where it's like, it's kind of like, are you just uh, um, teaching to the test? You know, mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. um, and I find that in some classes, this was most of my classes were not like this, but I find that in some classes, 
students I, I find are more like this, that they're just focused on like getting the assignment garment right, where it's like, mm-hmm. I need this one garment to look right on this one dress form. And most classes are not going to allow you to fit on yourself. They mm-hmm. need you to fit on the dress form just so that they have kind of like a standardized way of grading everybody. And also because it's just really annoying and complicated to fit on yourself. I know I do it all the time. And, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and it's just, there's like a level. And also if you're in a class, part of fitting on yourself means that you're half naked all the time. And that's just not appropriate in a classroom setting Mm -hmm. obviously so what what I find is is that if students or maybe even teachers are focused on just getting the sample end garment right then yeah what you're saying holds up but if you are paying attention to what curve on your pattern matches up to which curve on the body then Mm -hmm. it becomes really easy to manipulate that it becomes Mm -hmm. if you understand how what you're seeing on paper translates onto the body and onto the dress form, then it becomes pretty simple to say, oh, okay, I'm working with a client who has a very low armhole. How would, mm-hmm. how would I make that change? You know, she has a lot of fat on her upper arms. Okay. So then we need to drop the armhole. We're not going to make the whole armhole bigger all the way around because it's not like her arms are suddenly closer into her chest, you know, like a T-Rex. She just needs more <laughs> room on the bottom. You know, thinking about if you have your, your bearings within a pattern, then mm-hmm. it becomes that much easier. It's also a matter of knowing how to conduct a fitting with a client. You know, if you're doing a muslin fitting and you have someone there who's trying on a muslin, then, you know, just knowing, okay, well, if I pin it here, that's going to have this effect there. Um, you know, mm-hmm. I know that when I, right now, the stress is way too long on her. If I'm getting a little bit of rumpling around her, you know, belly or butt, I got to get that length right first, because that rumpling could very well just be caused by the fact that the dress is pooling on the floor around her. Mm-hmm. You know, things like that, just getting your bearings in a garment is really helpful to understanding how things fit. And the truth is a lot of that is experience. And it is, it's it's only more difficult to work with plus size bodies when you are uncomfortable with plus size bodies. If yes. you are not, if meaning you have to start, especially if you're working one-on-one with clients, which I don't do as much as I, I Impact Fashion is a retail line. You can buy my stuff online. Um, like I said, it's available in sizes two through 28. And I do a lot of consultations, um, you know, what alterations would work for people if they need. I also do some custom, um, some custom designs and I take on very few clients for that just, from limitations on my own time. And, you know, I do that more for fun than anything else. But mm-hmm. what, um, what I found is, is that especially when you're in a one-on-one situation, but also in a, in a, you know, kind of global retail one-to-many situation, you, if you're starting from the mindset of, okay, whatever, I guess, yeah, I, I guess you wear a size 24 and you need clothes. So let's see how we can make you not be naked. It's, first of all, gross. And also just the worst attitude to have. And that shows in your work and that shows in how your client ultimately ends up feeling in the garment. So mm-hmm. instead of viewing plus size bodies as problems that need to be fixed or hidden um, or, you know, cleverly seem tricked their way away, just starting with, okay, I have a belly. What am I doing? How is that? Is that changing what I'm doing? Maybe doesn't even have to. And, and having that neutral view towards bodies really shows in the end work mm-hmm. I I totally agree it's design and certainly fit is a lot about um like noticing and paying attention and giving giving the time you know caring about right. other people's bodies as well as kind of being able to empathize with okay if there's somebody who's this size or this shape 
or you know how how do they feel and how can their garment best support them throughout their day and and understanding you know somebody who's like a size zero in an a cup has very different like needs and support that you know might be needed in the garment than somebody who's you know a size 30 and has you know a d cup um so it's it's understanding and paying attention and honoring the bodies of who you're designing for, I think. I love that word honoring. You're so right. Mm. Um, so I want to ask a little bit more about kind of your your background too. Um, I'm super fascinated by that you worked as a seamstress and that you do a little bit of this kind of one-on-one alterations work that kind of gave you this, aha, why aren't we just making clothes to fit in the first place? Um, what were some of the things that you kind of like learned or insights you gained working as a dressmaker and doing alterations? And what were kind of the common alterations that you were doing all the time that made you rethink this? Way so I'm going to answer. Folks. I'm going to answer that backwards because the okay. common alterations led to the insights. The types okay. I was working mainly in, like I said, in my Orthodox community. And so mm-hmm. most of the alterations that I were doing involved lengthening skirts or building up necklines. So um, it was super common at the time. It's not so common anymore because there have been a lot more uh, modest brands that have popped up, but it was super common at the time to buy a skirt that was too short and then add another fabric at the bottom or just let the hem down so that you get a little bit more coverage, things like that. So those were the types of alterations that I was doing or just uh, building up necklines where if something was, you know, just a little too short, we would maybe add uh, too low, excuse me, we would add some trim at the neck or, uh, you know, talk about what different fabrics could be used. Uh, If something was, let's say, had a long sleeve, but the sleeve wasn't lined, then I would add in linings, things like that. And Mm. the the main thing that I would say that I learned from from, you know, my my years as a seamstress, which I, I don't do anymore, but it it really started this idea in my head that we all have the same insecurities. Mm. And what I mean by that is I would have women come in with clothes that had something that was objectively wrong with them, right? They were either too short, the necklines were too low, the sleeves were too short, they didn't fit, they needed to be taken in or out, whatever it was. There was something objectively wrong with the clothes. And almost always they would frame it as something that was wrong with them. Almost always it was, listen, if I could lose 10 pounds, then this dress would fit. But like, that's not happening now. So how do we make this dress fit? It was very, it was framed as, as a shortcoming in themselves. And the thing that I found interesting was most of the women that I was working with at the time were objectively gorgeous. And I mean that not only in that most of them tended to be smaller, but also just the way that they carry themselves, the way that they look, the way that they were put together. These were stunning, gorgeous women who were also highly accomplished, you know, who had successful families, successful careers, just really like real people. Do you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. real people with real mm-hmm. lives who still had those same hangups that we would expect to see in like a teenager. And I'm talking sometimes about like women in their 40s and 50s. So it what it opened my eyes to the fact that when these kinds of thoughts crop up, we really have to kind of deal with them with how we are right now. You know, we really have to deal with them with whatever body we're living in at the current moment, because that's not going to go away no matter how your body changes. And that was when those first seeds of that started, especially because every now and then I would, you know, be working with someone who was super confident. 
in whatever way, for whatever reason. And there was not a consistent look to the people who felt great in their skin. Like there were some of them who were smaller. Mm -hmm. There were plenty of them who were bigger. There were some of them who were mid-sized. And it was always interesting to me to see that sometimes even the most self-conscious people were the tiniest people that I was working with. And so just really starting to see, like I've often thought about this. I think that this is appropriate to say. I've often thought that like nobody has a healthier body image than like an OB. You know what I mean? Because like they know exactly what everybody looks like and all like and they they have seen the entire gamut of human anatomy, of female anatomy. Right. And mm-hmm. I'm not even talking like, you know, private general areas, but just like in general, like they just know mm-hmm. what people look like. And I would imagine that that would be I have I've never asked an OB, but I should. Um, I would imagine that that does wonders for, you know, their own their own uh, body image and the way that they view themselves. And I started getting a little bit of that because I started seeing how women of all types just talked about themselves and talked to themselves. Uh, And that was really, um, you know, when I started to kind of solidify these ideas around this, the the, the main thing that I've come to learn is that how we feel about our bodies has absolutely nothing to do with how our bodies look. And that's Mm. been something that I consider myself really fortunate to have discovered in my twenties. Yeah. Yeah, that's really powerful. And I, I think clothing that fits, I like I found that clothing that fits, regardless of size, regardless of, you know, body shape, when like that does wonders for somebody's confidence too, where they can kind of see the beauty that was in their body the whole time and maybe was just hidden by these poor fitting clothes that they thought like their body was the problem when really like, no, it's the clothes that are the problem. Um, so true. It's like you can see it on people's faces when they try on something that they feel beautiful in and they like feel great about themselves. Like they will be smiling. You'll see it on their face. It's pretty cool. Yeah, it's the best ever. Cool. So yes. So what did you do then to actually like start impact fashion? And I'm also curious to know like what what is the uh, reason behind the name? of the brand? So I started Impact Fashion as a wholesale only line. Um, I'll be honest, I was a little bit burnt out from working with clients. Just one-on-one interactions um, scheduling wise was really difficult. Um, I had had a handful of of difficult clients um, and I I needed a little bit of a break from that. And I also had this kind of just epiphany. I I was doing a couple of one-off custom gowns at the time as well. And I was just kind of thinking like, you know, at a wedding, at least at an Orthodox wedding, the only people who are wearing long gowns are the members of the bridal party. Everybody else is in cocktail dresses, like short party dresses, knee-length party dresses. So Mm -hmm. I just thought, well, there's more people in knee-length party dresses than there are in gowns. Who do you want to be dressing? Just from a business perspective, it made more sense. Like I was also just thinking about my own closet. I had, you know, five or six dresses that I wore to my friend's weddings that were all knee-length and, you know, one long dress that I was wearing when I was, you know, a bridesmaid. So I decided to start it as a wholesale line, uh, going door to door to boutiques um, in different areas uh, with modest dressing communities to sell the line. Um, And I did that exclusively wholesale, I want to say for like two, three years, something like that. And then eventually I started transitioning into an online, into an online model. Um, 
just because I was starting to grow my own, my own audience and people were reaching out to me from farther communities that didn't necessarily have an established boutique, but people were interested in buying. So I put a couple of styles online and that was going pretty well. And there are just certain things that when you running a wholesale business and a retail business at the same time is really difficult because the wholesale business needs things that are detrimental to the retail business. For example, mm-hmm. huge collections being released all at once. And the retail business needs things that are detrimental to the wholesale business, like releasing things one piece at a time and giving things the attention that they deserve. You can't really do that in wholesale. So mm-hmm. eventually I um, I actually made the decision in January of 2020 that that would be the last time I was selling a wholesale season. And I shipped my last wholesale season in February of 20, which obviously I could not have foreseen what was about to happen in the retail. Yeah, but it worked out, worked out. Yeah, it ended up working out really well. Um, But it it was definitely a wild time. And um, the name Impact Fashion. (laughs) Okay, so I decided that I was going to start this wholesale line. Like I had the 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 business idea settled in my head way before I had an eight. And I was in college at the time and I was kind of like in college. It was a full-time college schedule, but I didn't really consider it full-time. I don't know why. I just, I've always been a very busy kind of person. So <laughs> I was kind of like working on building a company while I was finishing up college. And I was sitting in a class and I started um, on my computer, a, a text chain with my mom, whose opinion I ask everything of <laughs> my sister, who is a graphic designer. And my cousin, her name is Goldie, who is just among the most creative people that I know in general. And I said, okay, guys, we have this one class to name a fashion company. Go. What do you think? And we just spent that whole, it was like a three-hour lecture. I don't even remember on what. I do remember that it was boring. Uh, (laughs) And I remember who was teaching it. And I remember that it was boring. And for the life of me, I can't remember what the subject of the class was. But the- We were were naming the brand. That's what you were thinking about. That's the subject, right? Um, We were were just kind of texting back and forth. I knew that I wanted it actually to be one word. And I knew that I wanted it to be something that could be, like I talked about this with my sister, I wanted the logo to be kind of text only, like a typography logo, not with like any kind of icon or anything like that. Um, Mm -hmm. Because that was kind of typical of what we saw in the fashion space. And I don't even know exactly who suggested it, but like we were just throwing words around. Like what would be, you know, elegance. I think at one point someone said flamingo. Like it was very strange. And we were (laughs) just throwing words around. Uh, And at some point somebody said impact. And I was like, oh impact i like that and everybody agreed that they liked impact and so at the end of that class the name of the brand was impact and then later that night my mom said to me she said you know if you call it just impact people it's like it's a good word it is but people won't necessarily know what you do they won't know that it's clothing Mm -hmm. why don't you call it impact fashion and then people know that you sell clothes and i said you make a good point impact fashion it is and it happens to be that in the grand scheme of things I will admit to thinking that this is I don't think that this is the world's most amazing name like I don't think that it's I I don't think that it's winning any awards or anything like that but I also am a big believer that as founders we tend to get caught up on certain things that might not really matter in the long run and that's not to say that the name of your business doesn't matter it obviously does but I also think that to a certain extent a name and a reputation is earned Impact Mm -hmm. fashion means something now to a lot of people because of what it is, not because of what the name name is, is. you know, and Mm -hmm. I don't think that and I think that that would have happened perhaps even if I had called it Flamingo just for the (laughs) heck of it, you know, and um, and and that was also something that, that, you know, that's something that's 
that I've thought about a lot over the years also. And, you know, now the thought of changing it is just so like, I, I can't wrap my head around it because impact fashion means something to a lot of people. And that I think is where, you know, the best kind of name comes in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's cool. And and so true that the the reputation and the meaning, you kind of build that once like the the brand is not so much the name as it is the meaning to people. Yeah, the brand is what you do. The brand is the brand is what your customers come to expect of you. The mm-hmm. the brand is really one of my favorite uh, perspectives that I heard. I don't even remember from where or it was a long time ago, but I heard someone say something along the lines of, "When you have your own company, a lot of people think that you don't have a boss." that you are your own boss. But the real truth is that you have hopefully hundreds, maybe even thousands of bosses. And those are your customers. They are the people who, if you are listening, are going to tell you what you need to do, and then you should do it. And Mm -hmm. that is, I think, really where a brand lives or dies. It lives or dies on what a customer expects. Customers in a lot of ways are like toddlers. (laughs) You kind of have to tell them exactly what's going to happen. And then Lord help you if you do not follow through. You know what I mean? Like you, (laughs) you, you have to set clear expectations and then deliver. And, you know, everyone, you know, always talks about under, uh, under promising and over delivering. That's great. Mm -hmm. Also, if you can pull that off. But for me, it's really about, this is what you will get from your shopping experience here. And then following through with that. Mm-hmm. And I find well, that, that builds if, trust, you know, like right, exactly. following exactly. through on like what you say you're going to do. Like, that's, exactly. It builds that's trust make- and it builds a relationship. Mm-hmm. And, and that relationship, you can't buy that. Mm-hmm. Or if you try to buy that, maybe you can hold on to it for six months. But yeah. if you want to have customers who are buying from you consistently, I release pieces one, one at a time. And there are customers who every single time I come out with a new dress, they purchase it. Nice. And that's because yeah, they, you can't, you, you got to earn that. You can't just buy that. Yeah. And you earn that through your product, through your product being really good. If the product wasn't good, they wouldn't do that. Mm-hmm. And you earn that through giving them the safety, you know, to do things like return if things don't work out. Um, and you earn that through just doing what you say you're going to do. And that's, that's really valuable once you have that. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, so what are kind of the core values of the brand? I know, you know, modesty, and it sounds like building this trust is a big part of the brand. Are there any other things that are kind of central to what impact fashion is? So I would say I would definitely modesty is huge. This is going to sound weird. Modesty is huge and also secondary because again, Uh I've been dressing this way my whole life and most of my customers have also. So for me, I just make the kind of clothes that I like to wear. And the kind of clothes that I wear are modest. So I don't really even start. I I don't usually. I actually had a couple of styles recently where I started from like, how do I make a modest wrap dress? What does that look like? And, you know, taking it from there. Mm -hmm. But uh, that's that's an unusual kind of process for me. And so modesty is definitely a a huge part of the brand. I would say I think the most about size inclusivity. uh, And I would say, you know, probably tied for first place would be size inclusivity and body shape. I think that a, a big reason why, a lot of people think that they that there's something wrong with them is because they never learned to properly dress for their body shape. Because instead of being taught how to accommodate all the differences in our bodies, we've all just been told from the time that we could talk that everything would look better if we were smaller, which mm-hmm. is just not true. 
It's just not true. Um, there's even each of us carries our weight differently, no matter what size we are. And even if, and I'm sure that you've seen this in yourself at different sizes, you are going to usually, with the exception of major surgery and childbirth, uh, and for some people, menopause, um, the proportions of your body are not really going to change that much. Meaning you may be bigger or smaller, but your widest point will, for the most part, generally always be your widest point. Your smallest mm -hmm. point will generally, for the most part, always be your smallest point. And that means that proportionally, the types of clothes that you should be wearing, it's not really going to change that much. So if we don't think about our body shape, we're really doing ourselves this huge disservice because instead of thinking, oh God, I just have to lose those 10 pounds and then this dress will look amazing. We need to take a step back and think, is this really the kind of dress that will work for me no matter what size I am? And that's something that I, um, that I, work a lot towards helping people realize is that all the things that they think are wrong with them are probably not even that big a deal. You just have to give yourself permission to accept the fact that, yeah, you have a big butt and that's fine. And here's what you do when you have a big butt. Here's how people with big butts who look great dress and taking mm -hmm. it from there. And that's definitely something that uh, I spend a lot of time thinking about as well. Oh. So I do want to dive more into the size inclusivity and the sizing. So um, how did you, when you're starting the brand, like how did you figure out the sizing and the fit and like what each size would be? And, you know, then obviously later on, we can talk a little bit more about the body shapes and how you design into that. But yeah, how did you figure out your sizing? Because I think that's a huge thing that a lot of newer brands get stuck on and, a lot of even established brands don't do that great on. So uh, mm -hmm. what was your approach to creating that inclusivity and keeping, you know, that sizing and fit just how you so, wanted it across the two through yeah. 28? Yeah. Um. So when I started out, I was not at two through 28. I actually, um, I started out, I was at six. I think I went from two to 16, I believe for my first collection. This was many years ago. Um. Okay. And then when I went into retail, pretty shortly let me think oh, hold on I don't want to mess up this timeline <laughs> yeah when I started out I was two through 16 maybe even two and what, through and what year did you did you start I again I started I'm I'm trying I don't want to butcher like, this timeline too bad I I decided to start the line in 2016 okay. I believe that I was wholesaling my first collection in 2017 and I think it hit stores the end of 2017 okay I want to that feels about right Right. Um, and I believe that that first collection I, I made available in sizes two through 16, uh, because full disclosure, at the time I wore like a size 10. And so like, yeah, 12, 14, 16, that feels like enough sizes. I didn't really give it much thought because like you said, there's so much uh, else that goes into determining the sizes, like what actual, mm -hmm. what each actual size is that I wasn't thinking so much about inclusivity at that point. Um, Eventually, I added an 18. And then one of the stores that I was working with, one of my wholesale clients had a particular style for me that was doing really well. And she called me up to reorder it. And I said, okay, great. What sizes do you want? She said, I could do any sizes I want. I was like, yeah, sure. What sizes do you want? And she said, okay, I'll take it in 16, 18, 20, 22, 24. Nice. And I said, oh, at the time I only offered up to an 18. And I said to her, do you have people who need those sizes? And she said, yeah, tons of people need these sizes. I have specific customers in mind. Can you do these sizes for me? And I was like, yeah, I don't see why I can't. Um, and so I made the sizes for her. I shipped them out. Two weeks later, I called her back. I said, hi, super curious. Whatever happened to that 2022, 24? And she's like, oh, they were gone in like three days. I had specific people in mind. I called them. They came. They loved it. They ordered it. Do you have anything else in that size? And I said, no, but I will next season. 
And then the season after that, I went two through 24. Um, nice. So that was how the inclusivity kind of built up over time. I was sizes two through 24 for a very long time. Actually, this past summer was when I added sizes 26 and 28 also um, on request. And it has been really nice to see how those, um, you know, how that size segment has been growing um, mm-hmm. as part of my overall online sales, which is just really nice to see. But in terms of actually developing the size chart, I just want to take a moment to say it's really hard. It's really, (laughs) really hard to do. And it's really hard to do right. And you are not going to get it right on the first try. Literally nobody does. And anybody who thinks that they got it right on the first try does not have a very good size chart. Because a lot of what makes a good size chart is customer feedback, is hearing Mm -hmm. from people how, you know, from a lot of people, like I'm not even talking about trying something on your mom, your sister, your best friend. I want to see a garment on a dozen, 20, 30 people before I am confident that the sizing is where it has to be. So when I developed my first size chart, there were a couple of brands that I had in my own closet that I just really liked the fit of them. So I I sat down with their size charts and I analyzed them and I kind of made a mashup of all of them where I just, you know, there were where I, you know, I saw where they were similar. I saw where they were different in some cases I followed one brand in some cases I followed another but I wanted to develop this universal size chart one thing that is really important to me every single piece in my collection runs the same that means that once you know your size that is your size in every single piece um just for an online shopper that's huge knowing what Mm -hmm. you knowing what size you need um and also it's just in my opinion indicative of a really good size chart that took me over a year to develop so once I had that first initial draft I made a collection with that size chart. And I also had an advantage because again, my line was wholesale at the time. So it was getting in front of a lot of people really quickly. It was getting Mm -hmm. into a lot of dressing rooms really quickly. People were trying them on because the people who were trying them on were not my direct customers. They were my wholesalers, direct customers, you know, my wholesale client, direct customers. So I was able to kind of talk to the store owners and see, you know, what are people saying about the fit? What do people think? And getting that and then getting that feedback and incorporating it in. So uh, one of the things that I did, I used myself as the first fit model to test the line. Uh, And I am a proud barely B cup. So I didn't really (laughs) realize that my bus just didn't have enough room for most people. So that was a a change that I made, you know, adding more room there. Um, Things like that, that you, you make these little tweaks. And I think that the other thing that people don't realize the differences between sizes is an inch all around. You can't really look at someone and say, you're a size 10, you're a size 12. It's very difficult to do that. And mm-hmm. basically nobody can. And the you can make small, literal eighth inch tweaks and it can be a step closer to a perfect fit. And that has been, you know, definitely, that was definitely a part of the process. Once I had a the size chart down, which took me about a year, year and a half, to fully develop um then i just had slopers made with all of like with those measurements and then i just use those slopers to make all my future patterns and so that's how i keep a consistent fit across all the pieces in the collection but it is hard it does take time and a huge part of that process is being open to feedback you've got to put your ego away and you have to Mm -hmm. listen to what people are telling you and if enough people are saying that something is wrong then it's wrong and you need to fix it and your company will live or die by the fit of your garment. If the stuff doesn't fit right, it will never look right. If it doesn't look right, people are not going to buy it. Mm-hmm. I, I 100% agree with that. If it doesn't fit, it's not going to sell well and people won't wear it. Um, yeah. 
I, that's so, so interesting and great that you were able to get that feedback so quickly. And thank you for like acknowledging kind of the long path it takes. It's not just like a one and done. Here's the size chart, slap it up on the website and we're good to go. Like there's a lot of work that goes into dialing that fit in for your specific customer and then making sure that the the size chart, you know, the body measurement chart that is on the website actually corresponds to the fit of each of the pieces. And yeah, building that consistency between styles. I I nerd out about that all the time. <laughs> the pattern maker, you know, like start, <laughs> don't reinvent the wheel, start from the piece that you are no fits already and go from there. Make the make the design, you know, the style tweaks. Um can be such a time saver as well as you know building that trust with customers that they ordered the size 12 last time they can order the size 12 in the new piece and it's going to be you know fit them the same way right yeah and it also just makes like you said patterning just so much more fun you get to skip mm-hmm. to the parts where you're doing the you know the, fun the part. design <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. true um so what parts of your brand do you work on it sounds like you do the design and the initial patterning and then do you have like any sort of team that does other parts of um production or patterning or like works with you in in the brand so i do all of the design i started the company so that i could be a fashion designer so you will have to pry that away from my cold dead hands before <laughs> i you know in a in a serious way give up the the fashion design aspect i give up all the design mm-hmm. and i am very much a flat pattern maker when it comes to a des- when it comes to design i'm not a particularly great sketcher i also don't particularly enjoy it so for me um a huge part of the design process is um you know in the pattern making and making those style tweaks and really understanding how pattern translates onto muslin and onto the body Mm -hmm. I'm working in that way Uh, I'm based in New York City which has a fantastic garment center and so I work also with um, a a computer pattern maker who will do the grading and marking for all of my um, for all of my patterns and uh, occasionally if there's something that needs just like a little tweak like if I'm making let's say just a maxi version of an existing piece in the collection then I'll just email him and he'll make that adjustment um, mm-hmm. you know he also kind of holds my library of patterns uh, in the computer and then he prints out things as needed and then I work with a factory that does all of the cut and sew so obviously mm-hmm. it would be uh, less than practical for me to be you know as much as I would love to sitting and sewing every garment so uh, I have, uh, again, a factory in the garment center in New York City, and they do all of the cut and sew on site. And uh, everything is produced in New York City. Occasionally, there will be outside contractors who do kind of specialized things. So like um, there's a dress in my collection called the pleat dress, which mm-hmm. has this um, like bottom pleated section of the skirt and then a matching self belt. So the pleated section, actually, the factory ended up um, ended up doing. We did it as, with a hand pleating process, uh, but the self belt went to a belt guy and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I gave him the fabric and he made uh, what worked for that particular design. If there's something that has a particular finish, if I need, you know, matching self bias tape, things like that, that goes to an outside contractor. Um, but for, for the most part, everything is uh, right here in New York City. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very convenient to have everything so local and close by so you can again, get that like feedback really quick on things and less shipping involved. Yeah. It's also just easier to stay on top of the production process. If some, Mm -hmm. if a question comes up in production, you know, I'll get a phone call 
we'll talk it out over the phone. Sometimes, you know, it's really not the same as being there in person. And sometimes things can be resolved over the phone and sometimes they can't be. And depending on the day, it's, you know what, I'm getting in the subway right now. I'll be there in an hour or I'll be there tomorrow morning, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. depending on the timing and how things work out. Um, and that ability to really be on top of the quality of the, of the product is, I mean, you can't, you can't trade that. Mm-hmm. So what is kind of a, a day in your life look like then running the brand? Do, do you run the brand full time or do you kind of like work outside of this as well? Uh, oh, I wish there was a typical day. <laughs> so impact <laughs> fashion is my full time job. Um, okay. And I run it out of my parents' house. So um, I work, I'm currently recording this in my studio, which is a spare bedroom in my parents' house. Uh, and a typical day, there isn't really a typical day. That's, that's to be honest. What I generally do is that I split my time between like content and marketing days and design days. Um, I find that for myself, I much prefer to pattern in large blocks of time. Uh, mm-hmm. I much prefer, I, it's, I find it really difficult to pattern for like an hour. I need to pattern for Me too. five hours. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's like you just, you get the groove going. And I find mm-hmm. that it, there are certainly, I love patterning, but there are parts of it that can, that it, that can be tedious and you just, you got to get into the groove with it. You got to get into that flow state. And so for me, what I like to do is block out full days that are design days. And those are the days where I'll be working on new pieces, uh, you know, patterning new designs, just playing around with stuff, you know, really creating the collection. And then I'll have um, content marketing days. Those are usually days when I'm filming content, either for my Instagram, the website, whatever. Uh, And then there'll be kind of admin days in between. So, you know, the days when I'm usually when I'm planning the filming days or when I'm, uh, you know, just staying on top of bookkeeping stuff or, you know, all of the boring mm-hmm. things that, that go into <laughs> it. Um, and then I have my podcast recording days as well. Um, I do yeah. host a podcast called Be Impactful, um, which is about the women making a difference in their own corners of the world. Every week I interview somebody, some other woman doing some other cool thing. Um, and I really, uh, I'll be honest, I started the podcast as an excuse to talk to cool people. And uh, so I have my podcast recording, you know, days as well. So, um, you know, and, and everything that goes in a- around with uh, with running the podcast. So that's been really fun to do. So it's every day is kind of different. Uh, but for the most part, I would say I'm here by like 930, 10 o'clock, somewhere like that. Daycare pickup is at five. So that's a hard end to my day. And then I, you know, go into full mommy mode until bedtime and then sometimes I'll pick up with some of the uh admin type stuff you know things I could do for my computer at home uh after bedtime depending on what season we're in or what's going on cool yeah it's so helpful I think to be able to split tasks into different days that where you can really get in the zone and batch things because there's so much to do as a small business owner that it would be hard to jump from like one task to another and switch gears every hour. I, I'm, I'm yeah. with you on that. If, if I'm working on a pattern, it's at least a half day, if not a full day where I want to be able to just like do all the pattern making and edits all at once. Yeah. I find also that one thing that I really had to adjust to actually becoming a mom was that hard stop time of five o'clock was mm-hmm. really difficult for me because I, I am a night person. I'm a really a night person. And so it's not unusual that like, I'll get into my groove with a pattern at like two o'clock. And then, you know, before I became a mom, I would be going until, you know, I could easily go until seven, eight, nine, sometimes even later, just, you know, cause you get into that groove and you just go. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But when pickup is at five, pickup is at five. Like that's just not, you know, that's that's that hard non-negotiable stop. And it did take me, you know, a little bit of time to get used to that and to adjust things where like in, but previously I would sometimes like record a podcast in the morning and then start patterning and then, you know, be able to go a little bit later. But now on the days when I'm patterning, I just block out those days and I don't do anything else. And it allows me to kind of shift the work a little bit earlier in the day so that that five o'clock doesn't become as much of an issue. Mm-hmm. That's smart. So when did you start the podcast? Yeah, I started the podcast in October of 2019. Okay, cool. Yeah, I've done over 200 episodes at this point. I publish every Monday. That's a And lot. like I said, <laughs> yeah, it is a lot. I love it. I really, truly love it. Um, mm-hmm. I, I really started as an excuse to talk about, to talk to women doing cool things. And I've had the absolute honor of talking with some women doing absolutely incredible things. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also just a great marketing arm for the podcast. That was like for the, excuse me, for the company. That mm-hmm. was a nice, uh, a nice little bonus that happened. Um, yeah. I was going to ask yeah. like how it ties into the brand and like impact fashion in general. So it, it ties in an actually pretty obvious way, not only just through the name, mm-hmm. but just my, my main goal with impact fashion is for women of all types to feel the best that they possibly can in their lives. And we all know that clothing is a huge part of that. And I think that another huge part of that is we take a look around at the people around us and we see, wow, she's doing such incredible things. She really has her life together. She is such an amazing person. And sometimes we think, not so much her life must be perfect, but we think she must not deal with the things that I deal with. She must not have the difficulties that I have. Or we compare ourselves to her and think, and that, you know, creates this negative feedback loop of, you know, what how we feel about ourselves. Mm-hmm. And I just realized that the more that I was having conversations, you know, through my through my work with Impact Fashion, I was able, you know, had the opportunity to get close with people who I think induce a lot of those reactions in other women. And the more that I spoke with them, the more that I realized that it's like, oh, you are the person who like always looks so polished and put together. And so many people probably look at you and feel inadequate about the way that they dress. But now you're telling me about how you feel such pressure to, you know, be put together that way. And that it actually is a huge source of stress in your life. And you are feeling the same inadequacies that everybody around you is feeling. Mm-hmm. And if you had a forum where you could say that out loud and have a a real discussion about that, I think everybody would come out feeling a little bit better. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of the 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 formative thesis, I guess you could say. And I can confidently say over two hundred episodes later that that is so true. I think that we think that there's some kind of you know the people who have it together now are not the people who always have it together. The people mm-hmm. who uh, had struggles when they were younger still kind of deal with some of those same struggles now and they manifest in different ways um and it has been just a really enlightening uh, experiment really to talk to so many different women I think that I mean you for sure had this experience people say stuff on a podcast that they would never say anybody anywhere else mm-hmm. there's a level of intimacy there that is so special and for myself I found that I think that we get stuck in those 15 second sound bites you know, everything has to be punchy and everything has to be, uh, 
you know, able to be put in a headline, you know, and make mm-hmm. it into a video and put a put a cute meme on it and make it, a, a you know, a punchy caption and have it go viral and and all of that really complicated thoughts do not lend themselves to 15 second sound bites. Mm-hmm. And I think that the more that we are bombarded with these short, pithy ways of looking at things, the more we crave real deep and meaningful conversation and giving a forum for people not only to express that, but for listeners to engage with that and to and and to enjoy those conversations, to hear those, you know, much deeper conversations, not unlike the one that we're having right now, is is also a really just a really powerful thing. And from a business perspective, yeah, it's a great way for people to get to know you because, you know, I have different people on every um you know, every week and mm-hmm. their audiences find me that way. But that's so secondary to giving people a a forum to say the things that just can't really be said in a cute video with a background dance. Mm-hmm. I'm a hundred percent. I feel like we, we mm. like, I were similar in many ways, like pattern making, you know, kind of brain, as well as I feel the same way about this podcast of, you know, they're an hour long, which is long, but oftentimes the best conversations and like the most real and like vulnerable and like the ones that are the most meaningful happen at the end of that hour, you know, like Mm -hmm. once we get into it and the, you know, I don't send questions in advance as you know, and I had experimented both ways and found that like when the when people knew what I was going to ask in advance, it was way more like scripted answers and less of a conversation. But when it's like people reacting and relating and connecting in real time, um, that's when like the real honest, like deep, meaningful conversations came out. Um, That's such a good point. I run my podcast the same way. Unless somebody is very insistent, I don't send questions in mm -hmm. advance. And one of my personal pet peeves is just when you're listening to a podcast and it's like, here is question one. Where, well, well, tell me about your company. Oh, that's so nice. What kind of clothing do you design? Oh, that's so nice. Can you tell me about body shape? Like it's just, it's, it becomes an interview as opposed mm-hmm. to a conversation, which is personally not my, not my taste. I much prefer to just chat like this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Me too. And, and yeah, the connections are, are really are really amazing that we can just meet other people and hear their story and relate and say like, oh, I've struggled with the same thing or I've realized the same thing or that's amazing. Congrats on whatever big accomplishment. And yeah, so cool. Um, yeah. It's also one of the things I've been able to do with the podcast that I don't know that I would like, I don't know that there's any other forum that you could do this on is mm-hmm. every time that I released a new style, I record a solo episode about that style and I actually what? love love those so I've I've listened to not all of every you know all 200 of your your podcast there's episodes, a lot of them yeah <laughs> but I've I've listened to a good chunk of them and um I like the I like the mix of you know hearing from guests but then I really like hearing kind of behind and like a deep dive into the each design like that's a really cool format thank you they're really fun to record I do them because I want, first of all, because I like them and it's my (laughs) show and I could do things that I like. But aside from that, I think that I think that it's important for people to if we want people to think more 
critically about the clothes that they're putting in their closet, then they have to know what's going on behind those clothes. They have Mm -hmm. to, you know, if we want people to be able to make a real informed decision, then we need to give them the tools to do that. Um, And that's why I do those solo episodes where it's, it's sometimes more of like a personal diary of just what was going through my head at the time when I was creating that piece. Sometimes it's more of a technical discussion. It's really different because the process for every piece is always a little bit different. Um, But yeah, those are, those are also really, really nice to do. And I don't know that like if I made a 25, 30 minute long video and posted it online, I don't know that people would necessarily watch it, but you record a 20 minute, you know, 30 minute podcast episode and people are interested in hearing what you have to say. And that's uh, really special to be able to share that with people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So cool. I, I love it. Um, so yeah, I love to kind of hear just a little bit more about like your like what inspires new designs for you I know you kind of block out days for design days and pattern making days um but what when you're creating these new pieces where do you find inspiration and what does kind of that creative process look like so I'm going to give the world's corniest answers and say everything (laughs) and that's only because it's true so when I'm by the time I'm getting to a patterning day I already have an idea Mm -hmm. and the ideas come at the weirdest and most inconvenient times I almost always have my sketchbook on me so that I can like just kind of jot things down like I said I'm not a huge sketcher in general um but I can I can get enough down on paper that I know what I mean basically they would be totally useless to anybody else but I can uh you know but I can translate it Mm -hmm. um they'll usually start at this point they'll start from a couple of places sometimes they'll be my own closet if I find that you know I've wanted to go out to lunch with my friends and I don't really have a good piece that does that well. Okay, let's make it. You know, what's something like that? Um, If I find that I need a a particular, that if I have a particular hole in my closet, I'll go out on a limb and say, most people probably do also. And so I'll start from there, from like a scenario. What would I wear to X, Y, and Z? Um, Rarely, so I've been doing this a little bit more recently, but rarely I'll start with, okay, a lot. we're seeing a lot of, you know, bustier corsets. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to wear that. That doesn't, you know, align with my values, but I kind of want that same, you know, flirty, romantic, Bridgertini kind of feel. What does that look like for a modest dresser? And that's how the ribbon dress came to be. Um, sometimes it'll be things like that. Sometimes it'll be, I'll be working on a design and I'll think that it needs a particular element. And then I'll add that element and it'll be awful but it's just because it doesn't work in that particular design not because the element itself is bad do you know what I mean Mm -hmm. so I'll um so then I'll be like oh okay that's the next piece figuring out what I'm gonna do with that particular whatever uh it's really different every time I almost always like I currently have a backlog of like I want to say maybe six designs that I could pattern at any given moment um yeah I I don't have an answer for this because they just kind of been difficult for me it's just it's just kind of been there and that's not to say that if you don't have that then you can't be in fashion design you'll just have to figure out your own kind of process there will occasionally be times where I'll set aside time for sketching you know for coming up with ideas Mm -hmm. um almost always I'll do that in an unfamiliar environment like if I'm taking a day and I'll be at a museum or something like that then I'll sketch there um or I'll go on you know on like a walking trail or something like in nature and I'll sketch there something like that um well usually just kind of getting out of my own head that will also sometimes help um but yeah they they just kind of happen when they when they damn well please (laughs) 
Yeah, and, and and I do think kind of inspiration comes from everywhere, especially when you're when you pay attention to it. Like it's right. almost going back to like just paying attention to to people and their bodies and um like who you're addressing. It's when you're looking for things and you're looking for insights and you're always kind of thinking about this in the back of your mind, like things just pop up all the time, wherever. Right. Mm-hmm. So cool. Um, so I have one more question that I ask everyone at the end of the interview, which is if you could communicate one value to the world through the clothes you design, what would it be? You are enough. Mm-hmm. You are you are pretty enough. You are smart enough. You are just everything about you is enough and deserving of all of the beauty that exists in the world. Love it. This has been so fun, Rivki. It's been great to get to know you and chat with you more after hearing you on the podcast and um, following you for a bit. Where can people find out more about Impact Fashion and everything that you're doing online? So first of all, thank you very much for having me. And uh, you can find Impact Fashion, see my designs, uh, get a feel for the brand at impactfashionnyc.com. If you are a social media kind of person, then I am at impact.fashion.nyc. And you can listen to the Be Impactful podcast wherever you're listening to this one. Just search for Be Impactful. Awesome. I'll put links to those in the show notes. And thank you again for joining me today. This has been great. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. If you'd like more episodes and resources like this about growing a fashion business that fits your customer, lifestyle, and values, send straight to your inbox. You can sign up for my email list at howfittingpatterns.com newsletter. Again, thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join me again for the next episode of How Fitting.